Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Rudin, and with me is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Good morning, Brian. So for this episode, as we often do, we're going to look at a particular issue that is featured in Health Progress, which Marianne is the editor of. And uh, Marianne, can you tell us about tell us a little bit about this uh, current issue, the January February issue of Health Progress? So it's it's the beginning of a new year, and it is. Some people think it's the beginning of a new decade. There's some argument on that. We decided to focus on um, the scriptural passage, making all things new. And in doing that, we thought about what's going on in Catholic health care, what's going on in health care in general, um, what, it's, what it means for people to see new models of um, partnerships and mergers, and what it means for what's going on in clinical advances and in technological advances. So. Um, we're excited just to talk with Dr. Alan Pitt today because he had a pretty important article that talks about um, how data has changed in healthcare and what it now means when data is being assembled in uh, in places other than your physicians or uh, clinicians' offices. Yeah, and one of our guests is uh, Dr. Alan Pitt. He's a professor of neuroradiology at the Barrow Neurological Institute. That's based in Phoenix and is part of Common Spirit Health. Dr. Pitt is also the chief medical officer of Cloud Medex Health, a healthcare artificial intelligence company that provides insights to the healthcare industry. Dr. Pitt, thanks for joining us uh, early in the morning uh, via phone from Arizona. Good morning. Thank you very much for hosting me. Appreciate it. And the other guest we have with us is a colleague of ours, Nate Blanton-Hibner. He is CHA's director of ethics. He's here in the studio in St. Louis with us. Hi, Nate. Hello. Hi. So, Marianne, I think you wanted to kind of kick things off on this conversation around data and healthcare, which is the article that Dr. Pitt wrote for Health Progress. Yeah, I do, because I think that the question that Dr. Pitt starts his article with is very provocative. Um, would you be willing to sacrifice some personal privacy so that you or, or, or somebody that you love or care about could live a longer life and a, a healthier life? I can't really imagine too many people saying no to that, maybe a few outliers. But I would really like, Dr. Pitt, if you'd talk about that as kind of an either-or um, situation and um, what you think the trade-off is for individual patients, for the clinicians who are struggling with um, managing uh, medical data, and for the health systems and the companies that um, are using data this way. Sure. I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to discuss this. I think it's a really big issue. Um, you know, I'd, I'd note that uh, one of my favorite books is Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. Mm. In that book, he talks about kind of this mismatch of what's possible and what we're allowed to do. And frankly, many of the rules, how we think about uh, patients uh, and their data, um, are really pretty archaic for what is possible now. So um, there are opportunities for us to markedly improve care for the individual, and for the population if we were able to use data for the benefit uh, of, uh, of, the, of the patient and the, and the group. But um, historically, we haven't really done that, right? We, we think about HIPAA and we lock up data. And so the idea of using your data for your own health care and for the population is, is relatively novel. When you go to patients and you say, look, I'd like to use your data, and by data, I don't just mean the EMR data. I mean your social data, your buying history, 
other things that define you, because as, as we know, uh, 80% of health is probably social determinants mm-hmm. rather than your own health. Yes. And so we really like to get at who are you as a person, what do you do, what choices do you make, uh, and can we in some way help you stay well, live longer uh, throughout your lifetime? When you begin to talk to folks about that idea of would you share things like your Facebook profile, your buying history, as well as your EMR data with others to improve your life, I actually have found there's a, a quite a number of folks who are reluctant to do that. And I, I think that largely comes from trust issues. I think there's been a, a large breakdown in trust. We don't actually trust, uh, you know, the healthcare system to necessarily have our own interests at heart. I think many patients don't believe that there's a big upside for them personally or for the aggregate. And so that, that's, a, that's another issue. And, and so they don't, really, um, they don't really see a benefit for them or for their children or grandchildren moving forward. It, it, it becomes kind of amorphous to them. Um, so, we, you know, we're all uh, generous people generally. You know, you would give to charities. And, you know, I almost view a patient's data as another charitable opportunity. Would you give your data? for the betterment of others. And I think that conversation needs to happen because the data is now truly a, a resource that can improve the lives of uh, millions. And Dr. Pitt, this is Brian. Do you think that patients have enough um, awareness or have enough opportunity to talk with their physicians and other providers about how their data is going to be used? I think there's sort of this assumption that, okay, my medical record, it's going to go into you know maybe an app that I can access and I can look up some lab results. Uh, I think a lot of people obviously are wary about if they put something on social media, that somehow that's going to be scraped and used to market to them. But what do healthcare providers need to do? Can we do a better job, I guess, of of having that conversation about here's your you know your medical information that you provided us is going to be used to improve care, like you've talked about in this article? Yeah. Other than in the context of a clinical study, I, I think uh, medical providers are woefully in a. Uh, uh, unprepared to have that conversation with their patients. What is possible? Why are we doing this? You know, most providers now are simply overwhelmed with the day-to-day of taking care of people. So for them to, to ask them to basically say, look, you know, you've been found to have a rare disease and we'd like to follow you forward and enroll you in an aggregate, I think that's a difficult conversation about what we as providers are doing and how that data might be used for the betterment of that patient. Um, and frankly, for the most part, except for the, uh, the primary investigator, the PI of a study, we as providers often don't have a clear understanding of how that might be rolled out. And so it would be very difficult for us to have an informed discussion with patients around that very issue. So this morning when I was rereading your article um, and identifying myself as both a patient and a person who's involved in healthcare, I found myself very frustrated that we were in uh, data 2.0, right? I mean, yeah. like ev- you, you and me both, by the way. <laughs> well, but I mean, you at least have the vision to know what 3.0 is. And I'm wondering if you would just sort of go through data 1.0, 2 in the article, um, I, I, it's on, you know, I kind of called out my profession, you know, how I've lived my life from medical student uh, forward. And so data 1.0 is really how I started my career. Data 1.0 was in the world of paper. Uh, you know, things were often done in triplicate. If I ordered a drug, it was done in triplicate. 
and it went off in a tube system, and hopefully they read my writing and read the quantity of the drug that I wanted to give. Certainly the data had no interactivity. In other words, if I, the patient had an allergy, someone would have to go through and look at another place to see if that patient might be allergic to a particular drug. Everything was on paper. Uh, during my career, uh, starting around 2000, we began to move to digital. There was a great promise that we would improve care by leveraging all these uh, newfangled computers, all these PCs, to be able to reconcile uh, orders with that patient. That patient may have had a past medical history or a drug allergy, things of that sort. And there was really a, a hope that in entering information into the computer, uh, there would be better care at a lower cost. Now, uh, I, I'd like, uh, unfortunately, that was largely aspirational mm -hmm. rather than reality. Mm -hmm. Because what's really happened is much of that data that we enter in um, is not designed so much for care as it is for um, the billing cycle, how we account for what we've done to that patient. And so um, there's very little in the way of data exchange between where you might go for your clinic or in hospital or another hospital. And so people really aren't exchanging that data. And that's an ongoing conversation right now where the federal government is really trying to have greater interoperability. But for the most part, um, we're still stuck in data 2.0. There's, there's another problem there, too. There's two kinds of data. One that's called structured. You can think about it as those little data elements that you might put into an Excel spreadsheet that are well-defined. That, that's structured data that's relatively accessible. And then there's everything that I write down as a doctor when I write a note, and that's unstructured or what I call dark data. That's data that the systems really aren't set up to read, put into the context of care, but there's so much data in there about how the patient's doing, my thoughts as a physician, what's going on, other things uh, in, their, in their lives that aren't captured in the structured elements that are problematic. So at the end result, the end result of all this is that uh, the time, the critical time for doctors and nurses to sit and talk with a patient has largely been consumed in data 2.0, mm -hmm. and I, I call doctors documentarians instead of doctors because they're sitting there documenting inside the EMR, and they're not looking at spending time with, um, with the patient nearly as much. Data 3.0 is this idea that data helps support us in our humanity to try to take care of patients, where data becomes part of the care exchange rather than the dominant part of the care exchange. It doesn't become the focus of what's going on. You know, I wrote a, a blog. I have a blog. Uh, I call it Healthcare Pit Stop. I wrote a blog post years ago, and I said, your doctor's not ignoring you. He's playing a video game. We have to get to a place where uh, I could simply dictate a note like I did back in the 90s, and that note is transcribed through natural language processing. That note enters the EMR. That note is interpreted by uh, artificial intelligence. That note is all the data is extracted, put in the right places, and I'm offered assistance in moving this patient through their care stream where the, the computer, the, the data 3.0, supports me in understanding these are the risks for this patient moving forward. These are the drug interactions that I need to be aware of. Um, these are some of the other features of this particular patient which may uh, help me uh, come up with a care plan. That's data 3.0, where basically it's a much more natural interaction where everything that we're entering into the record is managed by technology itself. I want to bring Nate into the conversation because, Nate, I think um, as data is used more and more in 
providing care to patients, there's obviously some ethical considerations. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on uh, as we we come into data 3.0, what are some of the cautions that that, uh, providers and patients should be aware of? Certainly, Um, and thank you, Dr. Pitt. Um, What I really appreciated about your article and your most recent comment right now was the realization of how the data, as well as all this new technology, acts as a support for you as a physician or for you as a care provider. I think that often gets lost in um, the general public. I think the public has some sort of aspirational view that data is going to completely replace my doctor interaction, that a computer is going to make the diagnosis instead of you, that um, we're not going to be interacting with a human again. And so this understanding of the complementarity between the technology, the data, and the human, I think it it raises a lot of really interesting questions for me as an ethicist. And I want to ask if you could just describe a little bit more before I go into some of these ethical quandaries um, about that relationship, a little bit more about how you see AI and cloud computing and deep learning and uh, data structures all being used actually in healthcare today. Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, I, I, uh, I have an admission, I have an obsession. So uh, it's not a terrible obsession, but it's still an obsession. I, I played a lot of chess when I was younger, and um, I still play chess online sometimes. And, and one of the former chess champions, Gary Kasparov, you may remember, he uh, battled Big Blue, IBM's chess computer, mm-hmm. and he lost. And he brought together a tournament where he brought together three types of competitors. One was humans, one was computers, and one was humans and computers. And what he found, and this is years ago now because the computers have continued to get better, but what he found was that the humans and computers were actually the best competitors because it was the mix of data management, the computer, and the creativity and intuition of the human that came up with the best uh, the best games. The, they were the most competitive of the three groups. Um, my view is that in my lifetime, I, you know, I can't speak to my children's lifetime, but in my lifetime, uh, humans want to get care from humans, and there is not necessarily a right answer for every patient. An answer has to be tailored to that patient, what their vision of their life is like. It's a relationship as much as it is um, there's a strictly right answer that's found in the research. So my belief is that, um, and I, I, I see this playing out, is that, that human beings will use computers to manage this overwhelming uh, amount of data to come up with risks uh, and benefits of different treatment choices. But then it really comes down to a conversation between two humans. Let, let's, let's look at it another way. Um, in a standard visit in the office, you might have 15 minutes to see that patient. The patient comes in, the doctor starts to query, ask questions. Of that 15 minutes, they make up, they may make, take 10 or 12 minutes of that 15 minutes just to do data gathering, right? Uh, and then they only have three minutes to quickly come up with, okay, here's what I think you have wrong with you. Here's what we're going to do. Are you okay with that? Very quick, no time left for relationship. Now imagine a future state where you walk into the office and instead of the paperwork that you filled out the eighth time, there's a chatbot. There's a, something similar to Alexa, and it says, Hi. you know, it's so good to have you back. Um, last time we were here, we talked about XYZ, and you frankly have a conversation with Alexa about 
uh, either a new visit or a, recur- a returning visit about what's going on with you, and you have a conversation where Alexa does that data gathering that's personalized to you and may even offer you education around some of the questions that you have. And you can spend, you could do that at home, you could do that in the office before seeing the physician, but you can spend as much time as you want as a patient um, data gathering, learning about your disease, etc. And now it's time to go see the physician. And the physician is presented with a summary note of that conversation. And it says basically all of the things that you talk to Alexa about. It may even prompt that there was a particular interest in certain aspects of your own care. The physician reviews that note with you and says, look, I just want to confirm a couple of things here because I'm a little unclear how this conversation went. I just want to confirm this, that, the other thing. Got it. And you may spend three to five minutes confirming the information that you uh, uh, got from the chatbot, that he got from the chatbot. And then he can spend 10 minutes trying to talk about, or she, what we're going to, you know, what's the diagnosis, what does this mean, what are we going to do next, truly relationship building as opposed to data gathering. Now, this may sound like pie in the sky, but there are already chatbots like this in the marketplace. So, uh, Babylon Health is a, a known vendor that does this. Uh, Cloud Medics, the company that I'm working with, has another chatbot called Ask Sophie that's a partner with Medicare that allows for this kind of personalized search, personalized conversation around who we are and allows the patients to become empowered at the table, part of the conversation. Uh, you know, I always find it really interesting that the word patient, you know, it, it's, it's a very paternalistic uh, relationship dating back to the Greeks, we have to figure out at scale how the patients can really be empowered in that conversation. So I see it as a man-machine combination uh, where we manage this ever-increasing amount of data for better care and, frankly, better relationships. I really appreciate that. I think that's something, um, <clears throat> the example of Alexa and the way we use chat boxes is certainly um, impacting many different fields and um, organizations. My, I know you're not an ethicist, but I'm going to ask you some ethical questions, if you don't mind, <laughs> about okay. how, do we, how do we manage some of these, you know, um, just potential obstacles. And when I read the literature on it and I look at the news reports around data and look at the way that governments are responding, that businesses are responding, I mean, the EU came out with their general data protection regulation yep. in 2016. California followed with theirs. Yep. Um, they seem to be very much focused on the privacy, security, kind of authority over who owns the data, how it's used, yep. et cetera, right? And that's only half the equation, though, in your scenario. The technology is only half. The other half is the human. And so I want to focus a little bit, you know, what kind of training then do we need to provide for clinicians, for nurses, for care providers who might be utilizing this technology with the patient? What kind of training do we need with the patient to make sure that they're using it for the betterment um, of humanity or the betterment of that particular person in front of them? Well, I think that's a very broad question. By the way, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's an ethical question so much as a practical question in terms of uh, how we manage that. Um, you know, we, we've kind of started down that road. We as providers have a pretty clear understanding of, uh, of what a HIPAA violation is, where we can't, uh, we certainly don't want to disclose patient data without uh, something that's, uh, that's directly related to care. 
Uh, we can use patient data currently in a hospital setting for quality issues. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm part of St. Joe's, which is now part of Common Spirit. Um, we can use data to try to prevent, for instance, infections or uh, other things that we're not doing too well. I think I think we as providers have a pretty good understanding of of what HIPAA is, although I think occasionally HIPAA is used in a very draconian way where, we, you know, we just blindly say, I can't give you that because it's a HIPAA violation, when oftentimes it's not. Um, I, I've actually, <laughs> I had another piece where I, I was looking for the opt-out of HIPAA button as a patient because although there are certainly great risks, particularly for certain conditions like mental illness, where we we would not want others, our employer, to know if we had a, a physical condition. In many cases, HIPAA is a um, is a barrier to good care. If I don't know about your records from the outside hospital uh, when you were sent in, and that outside hospital basically says it's a HIPAA violation until the patient signs for release of those records, I can't give them to you. Well, I may not give you the best care. And I think in the world of electronic data, where data can move easily, we need to rethink that relationship and come to um, uh, a better place. I, I just think that the rules that we're currently living under um, did, not, um, did not take into account how easily data can flow in and out of an organization. In terms of training people, I think that the, the overall bias is going to have to remain the same. You, you really should be there to protect the privacy of the patient first. And if you violate that, you better have a really good reason why you're doing it. I'm wondering if, you know, I, CHA had a webinar a few months ago specifically about care providers Googling their patients um, and the ethics of, oh, I want to go look on Facebook to figure out if my patient actually smokes or if my patient um, parties much more than they than they actually told me. And I think what the gray area became for some of those care providers or individuals who might have partake, partake, or partook um, in the Googling was that, you know, when, um, when HIPAA was created, we had a very kind of defined understanding of what information was protected, that protected health information. But now we're saying all information can be used for health, like all information about yeah. By, you know, everything is now. And so some people may go, you know what, I actually do need to know um, that other personal information about you in order to provide better care. Um, so how do we kind of, you know, wrangle in some of that? How do we give guidance to people even just today with, okay, there are some things that we really want to make sure we protect, like the mental health diagnosis, um, your per personal demographic information, et cetera, um, and not allow individuals to begin to think, oh, I need to know more about my patient, when in fact, we need to you know, give them a discernment, give them a, the ability to thoughtfully process. Um, this is actually for the good of the patient and something that I really do need to know as a care provider. Yeah, you know, I think the, for me personally, and I think for most of us, um, the real issue comes down to choice. I think if I choose to share that data with you because you're going to help me, then I think that, um, that that's okay. So in the case of, um, of Facebook and, and many of our tech companies now, uh, I think the issue is not that, the, that they have the data and they, they want to improve your life. I mean, a lot of times when you get all these ads that are personalized to you, I think the intent is to 
um, to to make your life more convenient, to improve your the quality of life. Albeit, uh, people want to sell you things, but we're not really given a choice in whether or not we want to participate. I can imagine. In many circumstances, there are patients that would choose to give their data to a provider. Uh, they may not choose to give it to all providers, right? So I may uh, want to give a catalog of my buying history, of my social history, to a particular provider that I believe has my best interest at heart and is trying to come up with a treatment plan for me. But I don't want to give my data to every provider. I don't want to give that all that data to, for instance, my insurance company or uh, healthcare systems more broadly. So the critical issue is one of choice. Um, in the article, I, I call out a, a new technology, actually. My son was a co-author, and he's an expert in something called blockchain. Blockchain basically looks to uh, change the administrative overhead, the authority, the accountability of data as it passes from hand to hand in a much more streamlined but transparent way. And the hope would be that uh, patient consumers would have the opportunity to turn on or off the authority to look at their data over time, because you can imagine different conditions where I would choose or choose not to share my data with different people involved in my care. So it's not an all or none thing. You know, Dr. Pitt, one of the sentences that really struck me um, in your article was that you said something about most of us are good people and we'll do the right thing. You know, we'll we'll make good decisions. We'll care about yep. other people. We'll take care of people who are less fortunate. But in order for that to be sustainable, there needs to be a business model. So yep. following up from the conversation that you and Nate just had, what, what can secure a business model that doesn't put – uh, 90% of all business into one company's hands, which you mentioned, yeah. you know, Epic. I mean, how much should government be included in this to oversee certain things, or how much could they screw up uh, because they can't seem to move forward on anything right now? So how do we move? I mean, I, I, I feel stuck. And I don't know how you felt about it, but the illustration that we commissioned for your article, you know, had this figure with a guy who's had you know whose hair turned into pages and the and the you know physician or whoever was just mining yeah, yeah. that poor guy's head for data uh, so i'm just thinking about what kind of business model can actually protect the common good on this um great question so I think, you know, I, I refer to uh, healthcare as compassionate capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, we're always going to take care of the sick, but um, we need to have a sustainable, scalable business model to do that. Every country expresses their, their core values, I believe, through their healthcare. America is, uh, we're capitalists. We, uh, we believe, I believe, that you get the most out of people by, uh, through capitalistic models. That being said, you need guardrails around that. Uh, you can't just have uh, unconstrained innovation. That doesn't work. I think we're seeing some of that now with the drug companies, where uh, the price of insulin, a, a drug that has been uh, you know, off patent for 100 years, continues to rise up. I think the key to having that scalable, sustainable business model is, again, um, transparency in how that data is being used and by whom. And currently, the systems are not in place to have that level of record-keeping where we can look back and say, 
who touched my account, who looked in, and what was the purpose for that. Um, in order to have a trust relationship, we need to have a much higher level of transparency around how that data is being used and by whom. There are opportunities to put that in place, but um, heretofore there's been no, frankly, business model that has supported transparency in data exchange. Imagine for a moment you said, look, you know, we're going to make it available that healthcare systems and healthcare systems have an enormous resource which is untapped, and that's their patient data. That includes their EMR data and includes their imaging data. And all of that data could be monetized for the betterment of society where we come up with algorithms and all sorts of software that could make people better. Um, but in order to do that, it can't just be the healthcare system's decision to take all of that data and put it somewhere else. Patients should be given the option to say whether or not they want to participate in that process. Some people have said patients, uh, consumer patients, should be uh, receive compensation for some of that data. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I want to go that far, um, but I definitely believe they should be given the choice as to whether they want to participate in that. In order to set up that marketplace, we're going to have to have much better infrastructure accountability around what's going on with that data. Dr. Pitt, uh, great insights. I think I can speak for all of us in the room here that we're, we're glad you're uh, working on this issue because there's obviously a lot to get your arms around and not uh, we're not able to cover <laughs> every, every issue in under a half an hour, but I think this conversation has really been pretty fascinating. And Marianne, I, I guess I'd turn to you to see if you have any last comments uh, about this article or about the topic in general. Well, um, Dr. Pitt knows that I uh, find him periodically <laughs> and ask him to update us on things that the rest of us are much further behind on. So I am very grateful for the article that you wrote this time. I think it sparked a lot of good uh, conversation. Um, I know that it's been used in uh, in some uh, mission leaders' conversations. Um, so anyway, I just want to thank you and uh, hope you'll you'll answer the call next time I ring you. I very much appreciate it. You know, it takes a village. It really does take a village to uh, bring about meaningful change. I'm just looking for others who want to come along in the conversation. We have a real opportunity. We, it's it's up to us in terms of how we use that. Thank you again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Pitt. And Alan Pitt is a professor of neuroradiology at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix. That's part of Common Spirit. He's also the chief medical officer of Cloud Medics Health. Uh, again, we appreciate you taking time out to be on the phone with us. And Nate, thank you for being here. Nate Blanton-Hibner, again, our director of ethics at CHA. Appreciate your comments and questions. I'm Brian Rudin. And for Marianne Steiner, this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. We appreciate the help of Clayton Studios here in St. Louis for their work in engineering and producing this. And until next time, we'll talk to you.